The basis of much of Jane Rogers' dramatic work is her own original fiction. She regards herself primarily as a novelist. I asked about the voices in her novels, particularly in Ireland and in Mr. Rose Virgins. You'll hear the author reading in the voices of the four different narrators from this last novel. The Lord has instructed me to take of your number seven virgins for comfort and succour. Seven? They say his wife is sickly, but seven? Judith touches my elbow, I know, I'm trying not to giggle. It's so quiet, it seems no one breathes in the whole of sanctuary. I mustn't laugh, I must not. Will he really? Will they let him? Who? Once Abigail Whitehead said to me, Can you imagine doing it with the prophet? We laughed with our heads beneath our quilt work for fear God might have overheard. I wanted to take four women on four very different journeys and Leah is interested in proving herself and finding her identity through being desired by men, through her sexuality. Um, Hannah is looking for some kind of intellectual achievement and satisfaction. Joanna finds meaning through her religion. And Martha starts from a very low point with almost nothing and kind of discovers pleasure, discovers a, a passion for life and some sort of spiritual understanding which is very different than the others, better than where she's come from. And that trajectory is very important. I mean, each of the women's stories travels in a different direction, but for Martha, it's pretty much a straight line from low to high, even though that involves what looks like fairly exploitative sex. Um, with Mr Rowe at one point. Martha is a character without voice, without language at the start of Mr Rowe's Virgins. Yet you choose to give us some of the narration. Why and what were the difficulties? Well, the reason why is because she was part of my original concept and I wanted one of my four characters to discover the world as a child does, to just find physical sensation, sight and smell and taste. And so she had to begin from that very low base... The other thing about Martha is that, obviously, from the point of view of the other women, she's horrible. I mean, she's a blundering, smelly, foolish nuisance. And bringing her voice in very late allowed me to build up for the reader a very clear picture of this kind of idiot stumbling around the house. And then it's quite a dramatic moment when I actually take you inside her head. Leaving that gap buys me the time to be quite dramatic. In terms of the sort of realism, if you like, of her development... While she has no language, I cannot give her her point of view. I can't give her voice. And when I do bring her in, she's pretty inarticulate. It's kind of very broken sentences, almost stream of consciousness, and it's not told in a logical narrative way in the way that the others tell their stories. So it was important to me as another way of seeing the world, as another way of storytelling, and also as a very dramatic counterpoint to the other three voices. Eat, eat, stuff. Hot, cold, sharp, sweet. Much. Cram it in. Tear bread, crust, eat. Dough, soft, mouth-filling. Yellow cheese, crumbling, sour. Hard eggs, slippy white. Dry inside. Eat. Shove in mouth. Chew. Swallow. Is more and more. Apple, sweet, musty, cooked flesh, red-brown, grained, tough. Teeth, go, go, go. Choke when swallow, eat more, pale, melting, oh yes, cram. No, not fish, she says, stop, the bones. They take it away. In a rough brown edge, stiff sweetness, 
tarts. Eat stuff. Cram. And yet, the other journeys, Joanna, for instance, they're not straightforward because they're fraught with complications. Could you elaborate on that a little? Joanna moves from a high-ish point in that she thinks she's going to be a missionary and she's going to have a significant role in bringing about God's kingdom. The Lord has instructed me to take of your number seven virgins for comfort and succour. Praise God. This is the sign the women are not forgot. My heart leaps to his words as the instrument to the hand of the craftsman. The joy of that moment will never leave me, nor, I think, will it be easily forgotten by any of those blessed enough to be present. God was indeed among us. He spoke to our hearts. He called us to join his glorious service. The joy within was so overpowering that I could do nothing but fall to my knees and thank him a thousand times for calling his unworthy handmaiden. When I became conscious again of the world around me, I saw that a similar feverish joy had gripped the hearts of many. The sign we have waited for has come. Southcott's call to the women. The time of the women approaches. Joanna finds herself used and abused in various ways. And I think by the end, although she appears to be fairly ecstatic, I think the reader realises that she's pretty deluded. As a premise in a novel to say the central character has to change, I think... It's generally true. I mean, you'll find exceptions. You'll find novels where the central character doesn't change. But in general, it is more satisfying if they do change in some way, I think. It may be a tiny journey. It may be they lie in bed all day and then decide to get up. I don't, it, doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering. What part did imagination play in writing about a subject matter which was so factual? I'd never written a historical novel before, and I'm not a historian. But one of the things that I was interested in doing in this novel was to explore possible ways of engaging with life for a number of female characters and I think people are more open-minded about dealing with ideas which are current now if they're set in a historical setting they come to them with fewer pat assumptions so I was looking for a piece of history a moment in history which would actually make it possible for me to explore different ways of tackling life if you like for women and, of course, the problem with moving back in history is that women's lives are very circumscribed by breeding. Most women have endless children, and that means that, that the whole notion of you know, what they can do with their life is already determined. So I was actually looking for a situation where women would not be in families and would not be trapped in that role. And that's what's so perfect about the Mr Rose Virgin situation because he asked for these women to come into his household and they were removed from family and they were removed from family duty. Now, OK, he gave them domestic duties, but there's a sense in which kind of emotionally and spiritually they actually had to find their own direction because they've been deracinated. Hmm. So as soon as I actually read the description of his household, it hit me that that was a perfect vehicle for the sort of exploration that I wanted to make. And it was even more perfect that nothing was known about these women. So I could make it up. And, OK, he asked for seven virgins, and to begin with, you think of, you know, seven beautiful little 16-year-olds. But then you start to think, actually, what girls would they give away? Well, you know, they'd give away difficult ones. They'd give away unmarriageable ones. People would have their own motives for the girls they got rid of. And so then it was easy to start to think about the kinds of women that there might be and, and, for example, to seize on a character like Hannah who's highly intelligent 
and whose father has died and she's therefore an expense to her aunt and uncle who don't even like her and don't know what to do with her. There's no role in society at that point for a poverty-stricken, intelligent, well-educated woman. My aunt and uncle have given me to a prophet. Given. Handed over with less heart-searching than they would undergo in parting with a crust to a beggar. It is a Christian Israelite. I have been called once to their meeting place, which they call sanctuary. The prophet is a small, crazed hunchback with the manners of a bear who foretells the end of the world. The elders of their church resemble tribesmen one might have found wandering the deserts of Palestine 3,000 years ago, in full-length robes and hair and beards uncut, bedecked with outlandish jewellery. From the hands of the meanest pair of scavenging crows on earth, I pass into the care of a lunatic band of would-be ancient Jews. That's one of the things that is most striking about the novel is that you actually develop these contrastive characters and one is religious, one is intellectual, as you say. But also what is striking is the voices that are realised in the novel for these individual characters. How difficult was it to create those voices, to find those voices? I like writing in the first person and I link that preference to the similarity between writing and acting. A writer, particularly working in first person, kind of puts on a character in the way perhaps that an actor does when they really try to get into role and think and see and speak as that character does. And very interestingly, looking back, I think I found it much easier to write the voices of the characters who were less similar to me. I found Martha's inarticulate voice when I started off actually surprisingly easy to write. And I found Joanna's voice very easy to write. I found Hannah the most difficult and I really, really struggled to make her voice feel of that period rather than feeling too modern, because she is a very modern woman, Hannah. I mean, more modern than the others, I think. People say, write what you know, and there's clearly a huge value in that. But I think there's also a problem, and I've come across this with a lot of student writers who are working in the first person, where they just find themselves writing themselves. And it's almost like, yeah, you need to put on a false nose and a wig <laughs> mm. in order to break out of yourself and find the other voices that you can bring that will draw on your own experience but won't be you talking. Because that is what is most striking about Mr Rose Virgins is the fact that there are four first-person voices. They're going to be the same, aren't they? But they're very, very different. Technically, it was absolutely vital to me that I made them distinctive. I wanted to create four visions of the world which you would believe were completely different and came from inside completely different heads and I wanted to leave the uncertainty for the reader whose version is true because these versions actually conflict diametrically in certain points and I mean for you to be interested in the conflict you need to believe that these really are distinct voices. The way Mr Rose Virgins is arranged is quite filmic and the way it cross cuts between different strands. Could you talk about how you arrived at this method and whether it was arrived at in the editing of the novel and did you write individual strands from beginning to end? It's quite ironic, actually, because the journey from original novel through to published novel through to film script involved writing four individual stories and then intercutting them for the novel and then writing four individual stories for the film. But, of course, it was very, very different because I wrote the four individual stories for the novel and... I worked in that way, always thinking that it was likely that I would intercut them. But 
writing each individual story from beginning to end because I needed to stay in one voice to get the continuity and to keep the sound of the voice in my head. I couldn't chop and change between them. And then when I came to intercutting them, I found that obviously I had to write new bits and I had to lose bits. There were certain key scenes that were in my head. It was a very complicated novel to plot and I had all sorts of charts and drawings of who was coming in where, but there were certain key scenes where I wanted the scene to be shown from at least two different points of view or possibly three. And strategically deciding where those would be placed was quite complicated. It was a massive restructuring job after the writing, if you like. What might you achieve by splicing the strands like that? I wanted the intercutting in the novel, I guess, for a number of reasons, the most obvious of which is the obvious reason why a lot of novels are intercut story strands, and it's because it's great for suspense. You know, you go so far with one character and you leave them with a dilemma or something happening and you move on to another character. And if you just look at the way that traditionally the 19th century novel, the George Eliot novel, for example, is structured, Middlemarch is a number of intercut story strands, and that's a great way to, to put a novel together. In all the characters, you've, you've achieved a sort of historical vernacular there. There's history in the voices. How did you go about that? That was quite a challenge because I'm a very good mimic. I'm not very proud of this necessarily, but in terms of writing voice, I am a mimic. And that's why I have to be quite careful what I read while I'm writing, because I will copy. So one of the things that I did while I was researching the book was to immerse myself in early 19th century prose. And I can do it a treat, (laughs) but it's cod. It's horrible, fake, early 19th century prose, and nobody actually wants to sit down and read a novel written like that. And I had to break myself of that. And I actually found myself going to other writers to see what they've done and looking at people who've set novels in the early 19th century to see what kind of language they use, how they're creating the illusion of that period without it being just sort of plasterboard and paint and historic scenery. And one of the writers I found most helpful, actually, was Peter Carey, who I admire hugely. I looked at Oscar and Lucinda and a few other writers. And it's very, very easy, once you look at the way that other people are doing it, to realise that you can create a sense of period simply by using perfectly accurate standard English with no contractions and by avoiding all anachronisms. And maybe, because this is a northern book, there's a touch of dialect words, but only ones that are going to be absolutely obvious to the reader. But... Those hints in the language are enough for the reader to make the jump. It's obviously more modern. It's a hybrid. It's an invention. I think the most useful things that I've found to read have been first-person accounts. So not actual history books giving all the facts and so on, but individual people's stories. I mean, for example, for Mr Rose Virgins, a book that was very, very important to me was The Diary of Anne Lister, which is a gentlewoman who lived in the area at that period and who just wrote a diary of a few years in her life. And although... Obviously, her prose is of that period, and I wouldn't aim to copy the cadences of that prose. I found myself returning to it again and again because it just gave details of the fabric of life, which were really, really useful. Practical things that you don't think of that take time, like just having enough clean clothes to last you through till the next wash day. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.